Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome CEO of Gender Consultancy, 21st and author of Why Women Mean Business, Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. Welcome to the show, Aviva. Thanks very much, Aidan. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And I was sharing with you a little bit of bias I was guilty of. I've taken the Harvard Implicit Association Test, which um, you can take them for multiple things. But one of them was automatic association between male and female with career and family. And I, I came out actually neutral. So I came out well out of that. So I'd be kind of in the small minority. I think it's about 17%. But then I read a title in the Harvard Business Review and it was entitled, If You Can't Find a Spouse Who Supports Your Career, Stay Single. And it was written by you. And when I clicked on it, here was my bias. I automatically assumed it was a female supporting a male in the career. And therefore, I was also guilty of bias that the world is guilty of today. Absolutely. Ed. Um, it's a bias that uh, a lot of people share, right? Everybody, uh, men, many men and many women will share the bias that uh, you've identified. So we're all in this together and we're going to need to get out of it together too. Yeah, and I think that's a really nice way of framing it in a positive framework of, of the opportunity that exists for us all because in a world where businesses are failing, industries are failing and everybody's crying out for different thinking the opportunity is right in front of us right across the kitchen table (laughs) exactly yeah and i'd love if you would share some of your mindset aviva with our audience well i think we're at a very interesting time in history and i think people underestimate the the revolution that this gender redrawing of the lines is doing i was born in 1961 which is the year after the pill um, and if you often ask people, you know, what was the key marking phenomenon of the 20th century? I do this to a lot of large audiences. Men will overwhelmingly say the first walk on the moon and women will overwhelmingly say the invention of the pill. What has more changed the world for all of us? Um, for the moment, I'd say certainly for most women, is the invention of the pill. So this massive shift uh, of women flooding into the workplace in ever-increasing numbers has changed um, countries, companies, and couples to a huge extent, which um, a lot of people kind of take for granted. Others will still resist Uh, And others will just ignore the significance of. And yet, there's probably been no other change that has more affected the life of every man, woman, and child on the planet than that one. Absolutely. And 60% of university graduates coming out of universities are women. And so few actually women make it all the way up to the top of the the corporate ladder, up to CEO roles. And there's there's this kind of block along the way somewhere and there you know if this is an opportunity to clear that block and you've you've identified some of the ways we can do that absolutely i've spent quite a lot of time and wrote a book called uh, seven steps to leading a gender balanced business i i read recently a wonderful article by melinda gates of the gates foundation 
at saying that we're still sending our daughters into workplaces designed for our dads. I couldn't agree more. And I think while the 20th century was really about the, the rise and education and arrival of women into work, uh, the 21st century will be the adaptation of men and companies to that rise. And it will require attention and intention to get our organizations adapted to a much more gender-balanced 21st century. Yeah, and, and you talk about th this concept. I love the concept. You, you call it womenomics. And it, it kind of encapsulates the opportunity and also the challenge. Would you mind sharing that with our audience? Yeah, womenomics is, I, I, that was the book, right? Why Women Mean Business. It's this enormous economic opportunity at every level, right? Macroeconomic at the country level, uh, microeconomic at the company level to actually leverage what is now the majority of the educated talent on the planet. And if you don't know how to do that, if you're not good at attracting, retaining, and promoting what is now most of the talent, you're not going to succeed in this century. And you're going to lose out to competitors who are going to be smarter and more progressive and ahead on the curve. And, and we talk, we see this all the time where people go, we're customer first, we're customer focused, all this kind of talk. And then when you realize, and you've identified 80% of purchasing, purchasing decisions and not just clothes come from women, and that includes cars, uh, houses, big purchasing, purchasing decisions are made by women, yes, the women actually designing the experiences, designing the, the steps to the to purchasing are not female at all. Absolutely. Well, and a lot of male-dominated companies will, you know, say rightly that, you know, yes, but their marketing departments are dominated by women or their, you know, customer-facing staffs or call centers are dominated by women. Um, that's not usually enough to change the culture and approach of um, companies and also who decides where the big investments get made. Unless you've actually got gender balance in leadership, you're still going to be normed in the way you think about your markets and your talent to, you know, the, where we come from, historical masculine based systems and ideas. And it is one of the biggest innovations that is readily available in most companies is the innovation that comes from listening to the other half of the planet. This is the piece I think is, is gold, is that companies are crying out all the time and they're bringing in consultancies and they're bringing in different thinkers or maverick thinkers and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, etc. But there's a massive opportunity for, for women who, are, who, who think differently and who will actually bring a totally different balance to the table, to the boardroom, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I saw one of the things you said, which was it, the financial crisis, like the, the financial industry is massively, overwhelmingly controlled by men. And if there was a little bit more balance and empathy in that, in that pot before the financial crisis, it may not have happened at all. Absolutely. That's one of uh, Christine Lagarde's favorite lines, the head of the IMF, who said, you know, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, would we be in this mess in the first place? And I think, true or not, people do have a little bit more trust for the moment 
in things that are a bit more gender balanced. And I think that's another opportunity for companies to build reputation and trust, which is sorely lacking, is to have you know a more balanced face to the world and more balanced leadership. That would build trust. And I think the whole concept of innovation itself is skewed masculine. Every time people talk about innovation, right now they're so enamored of technological innovation, right? It's all um, the internet and the web and, you know, bits and bytes, and rightly so. It's absolutely revolutionary, except that that's not the only innovation available. And the other innovation are social innovations, completely different customer experiences, different ways to reach and touch and interact with people that aren't only uh technologically facilitated, but also empathetic, relational, and highly skilled in emotional intelligence. That would be nice. That's a bigger innovation yet to come. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and that, when you look at big corporations, and I know you consult with a lot of them, the, the biggest challenge is not a new product. It's actually thinking differently about their own product, their existing products, or their route to market or whatever. So much elements of the proposition are up for grabs from an innovation perspective. But the biggest challenge is actually getting the entire corporation to think differently. And you're you're offering, well, you're not actually offering the solution. You're, you're, bring, you're shining a light on it and going, look, this is staring you right in, in the face here. And everybody's overlooking it. And for example, with that 60% we mentioned of, of females coming out of, of universities, highly educated, different thinkers, people are still going, oh, we have a talent crisis and we're looking to immigration for the, for the solution. Absolutely. It really is quite interesting. And what's also interesting is that there are entire sectors that are talent starved, like very much the tech sector, right, which is a growth sector that can't find enough skilled people. And yet the image of the tech sector has become so geeky, masculine, male, scary, um, that it is at huge reputational risk of not attracting any kind of talent. They're not attracting, it's not only women they're not attracting, they're also not attracting graduates generally. Whereas if they had a more attractive, balanced um image and reputation, I think they'd get the best talent in the world. And if any time you're looking at getting the best talent, it should, you know, by any rational calculation, be proportional to the talent graduating right now, which, yep, it's looking overwhelmingly female. And if you're not recruiting a slightly um, female-heavy intake, you really have to ask, why not? What is it that you're being biased about? When I thought about this and, and I read the book and I, I, I watched a lot of your talks, etc., I kind of thought Aviva's challenging the, the status quo and shining a light on it. But it reminds me of that saying when you walk into your kitchen and the sink's overflowing and there's a mop there. You start mopping or you turn off the tap and you get to the root of the problem. You're both shining a light on the fact that the, the sink is overspilling and we need to mop it up. But also, how do we actually deal with the source of the problem? I think identifying the source of the problem is what I usually struggle with. So generally, if I'm walking into any organization they and or I'm talking to any manager, male or female, by the way, 
the overwhelming analysis is, oh my goodness, you know, we don't have enough women either at various levels, but mostly in senior management. And so the immediate next step to that analysis is, well, let's help them as though the reason why there are no women in leadership is women themselves. And so we have watched, and I have watched, 20 years worth of a focus on women in order to what's called empower them as though they were lacking in something required to succeed in business. And most of what I do is I invite companies and the leaders I work with to rethink their fundamental analysis. Maybe the issue isn't that women are lacking something in order to succeed, but that there is a dominant group that's currently in power that has a very systemic preference to reproducing itself over and over and over again. Uh, and if you change your analysis, you also change the solutions that you apply. And once you start focusing not on women and try and fix them so that they adapt to the workplace, but you focus on the workplace and the culture and systems and norms on which it's based, which are historical and obsolete, then you can start to get a much more successful and fundamental change and innovation all the way through the system. And then everybody wins. It's not even just with gender imbalance in the workplace. It's everything like that saying of when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at yourself is so true where people blame external forces instead of actually looking in the mirror as, as a company and kind of going, yeah, but what are we not doing? What are we not addressing to actually fix these things? And you talk about innovating backwards and innovating forwards post-recession. Could you fill us in a little bit on that? I love this. Well, I think it was just the reaction to the financial crisis that you know, whenever there's a crisis, people tend to hunker down on what makes them most comfortable, which is usually the people that you've known and grown up with for a long time. And they call it innovation, but it's actually just letting go of anything new in the system that makes you nervous. And that's what I call you know, innovating backwards. Innovating forwards means you embrace fear, discomfort, new things that uh, you don't entirely understand that are going to completely stretch your thinking and figure out how to work with that to create something incredibly fresh and different. And I think that's innovating forwards. And usually the companies that do that are those that understood too, that some of the people that are recent to the game are those with the freshest ideas and in restructuring times or crisis times, you desperately want to hold on to the new and not comfort yourself uh, and your insecurities with holding on too tightly to the past. When you look at it, it's also how people are measured. So they're measured or bonused on, you know, monthly or quarterly earnings or yearly earnings. And therefore, anything that deviates from the norm from those earnings is actually a threat. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of pressures, right? There's pressure of change in a million different varieties. What I find also just with these leadership teams is, they're not always incredibly open with each other. They're not always hugely relational between themselves. They're often fairly siloed and fighting for power. Um, 
this is this is the you know the, the ma- male side of the fight and flight mechanisms. So it's not necessarily a very collegial, helpful, aligned kind of place. And I spend a lot of time also just working on leadership alignment strategy. Do we all agree on where we're headed? Do we all understand that in the same way? And it's interesting that more gender balanced teams tend to have very different kinds of relationships within themselves and just healthier conversations that don't negate uh, emotion and fear as something to be kept off the table, but on the contrary, to be uh, seen frontally and addressed and, and forgiven that this is not a, that there's no failure, that there's just sorting through it and getting through it together. I think that that does come from the culture that organizations create. And right now, most of them are just normed on masculine uh, behaviors and a little bit of balance goes a long way to radically shifting the kind of conversations, not only that men and women have between themselves, but the kind of conversations that men can have with each other. When I think about that, sometimes I think about, okay, it's leadership. And then you kind of go up a little bit and you think, okay, well, who's controlling the leadership? And you think of the board of directors. And so many board of directors lack a female element. And if they do, there's, a, there's an element of tokenism there to go, oh, yeah, we do. But it's not done from the right place. It's actually not done from a place of true, uh, of authenticity. But when it is, that that changes the whole makeup of the organization because it, it trickles down surely into the organization. Say, for example, somebody's listening to the show on a board and it's male-dominated, male and so is the leadership team. They probably don't, a lot of them probably don't know where to start. Could you give them a little nudge on, on how to get started? Actually, I think a lot of them have started, right? Especially at board level, there's been enough efforts on getting a little bit more gender balance on boards. There's a huge amount of peer pressure. In seven European countries, there are now board quotas coming up. So I think that game has started pretty strongly. My argument would be actually that boards have less of a trickle-down effect, less quickly than we would like. And so the urgency, actually, that I would posit is the executive team itself. I'd love to see more executive teams focus at that level on who's actually running the company. Because boards are, you know, they meet eight times a year and they're not directly running things. They do have an influencing. The trickle-down role seems to be true on gender issues, maybe five years down the road. But time is short and the opportunity is huge. So I would actually invite CEOs Simply, really simply, just put the issue on the agenda with their own teams and get team alignment on whether or not this is a business opportunity for their own company. That's where the conversation starts. That's where we started. Why care about gender balance? And most of these leadership teams get a big wake-up call from these kinds of debates. It's not something that they've spent a lot of time discussing with their peers they're usually being told this is a good thing by you know their diversity people or their hr people but they don't they haven't themselves necessarily really thought about it much or argued uh, from a much more strategic position of how good this could be for their company and that's work that still needs to be done and you know i even see it on the show 
it's it's much more difficult to get uh, female entrepreneurs and, and founders to be interviewed because there's there's a distinct lack of ego compared to so many men. And I've I've seen these statistics where should a, a promotion come up for a male versus female, the male, even if he's underqualified for it, will go for it, while the female who may lack one of five elements that are needed won't feel qualified for the job. Can you tell us any any of that kind of stuff? Because there's so many examples of this. Yes. So, uh, and I'll challenge you personally on this. So, what what I find so interesting is how do people interpret that data? Okay, so we now know with reams and reams of research that men will overpromote themselves, women underpromote. So what? My question is always, why are companies bothering to have these long arguments about what women want? It's the wrong question. What we need to ask is, what does my company need? And if the answer is my company needs gender balance because that will deliver better performance, better talent uh, identification, and better market connections with our own customers, then the answer is a no-brainer, right? What is it that we need to do in order to get women promoted? Generally, any company that still thinks that the only people who should be promoted are those who ask for it are in the wrong century. So my invitation to you is the same, right? All these kinds of publicity, media shows, if women don't want to inter- you know, to be interviewed or get on the show, what is it that you have to do to get them there? What is it about the show or about the invitation or whatever that might make them reluctant to join in? And if they don't feel like it, then the job of these different, uh, your job would be simply to learn how to make it more attractive. What is it that would make yeah. it attractive? And I, I'm, a, I'm yeah, a big admirer of Ted on this because Ted is one of the rare sort of showcases of ideas that has, since its inception, strategically gender balanced. I did notice this. You talk about being gender bilingual, and that may be a failing in the system and you you know when you talk about the conditions for you know a, a farmer doesn't make crops grow he creates the conditions for crops to grow it's, it's that type of mindset you're coming from and but being gender bilingual might be a, a way to unlock that yeah and gender bilingual is really uh, the uh, the idea that you you not only uh, speak the language of both men and women but you understand what the differences between them are so in your kind of, if I take you at your show or any kind of show as an example, right? women aren't going to get onto a show in order to promote themselves, but they might be quite tempted if it's a showcase for their ideas or to further the things that they care passionately about or to share them with a the broader community. There are different arguments that might heavily impact. And I think it's very often the words, the vocabulary, the mission of these different kinds of invitations that are still, again, slightly leaning towards a masculine norm that unconsciously just turns a lot of women off. It's it's a challenge I certainly will take on and uh, address. As you said, that's the first step. The other thing I want to ask you was this, was exemplars or champions that you've seen, companies who have actually just gone, you know what, we need to address this. And we want to be leaders in this and we want to change how the company is run. 
can you can, you don't even need to give any names, but the types of companies, the DNA of that company, the types of people who are driving that. Could you give us the kind of makeup of those people and companies? Yeah, I think it's often actually innovators, right? It's, it's innovative companies, and it's particularly innovative CEOs who often themselves come from what I call a slightly out group, right, where they haven't been just uh, an entitled part of the dominant norm for their entire career. So you'll see it sometimes from CEOs who come from a different nationality. Right now you're starting to see some emerging market CEOs coming up to the top of their organizations. An experience of being different, excluded, out groups is a wonderful training for becoming a more inclusive um, organization and CEO. So I think it's often a measure, and the other measure, particularly on gender, I think, is CEOs who've, who have had um, role model mothers, wives, and daughters that have spurred them to avoid the you know, kind of more common stereotypes about what women and men do in their lives. And I think that combination, it, it often is the CEO more than the company that gets companies started. But I would point you when people are always looking at women at companies that have their first female CEOs as big innovators. What's usually really interesting is the CEO before the women, because those are the, that's the guy who changed, uh, who spent years changing the culture to get that woman. So you know, General Motors, IBM, uh, Pepsi. Yeah, the women are fantastic. But the innovators were the the bosses that got them in there. Yeah, yeah, and the the pioneers often take the arrows, and they would have, I'm sure, met a lot of obstacles and a lot of uh, you know obstruction from from a lot of people who were vested had vested interest, and that that's really interesting. I love that because that matches exactly with the makeup of an innovator in any way. So an innovator as an inventor or a technologist or an entrepreneur or some way, way is is often that maverick that's a different thinker that's had some a lot of resilience in their life or, or, or kind of grit built up through adversity. And is that what you're saying? You're seeing the same thing from these people who have made these big changes in companies. Yes, and I think that they've identified what is the big challenge of the 21st century that goes well beyond the business world, as we're seeing in the political sphere, it's the realization that women may, be, may have been the great innovators of the 20th century just by their extraordinary rise. But the real need right now in the 21st century is to get men to bring other men on board to the phenomenal power that gender balance can still yield for our world. That's the company side. That's where the organization can change. Last place and probably the most important place and where it all originates from is the home. And this is the article I read where spousal support is key. But there's a lot of dynamics have changed there. Could you tell us a little bit about that, how gender is in play at home? Yeah, it's huge at home. So the same revolution that's happening in the workplace obviously has trickle-down effects into homes, career planning, uh, relationship building with spouses, dual career issues, something I work with with my MBA students quite a lot. How do you plan uh, for a dual career family in the 21st century? 
And my next book, which is coming out in February, is addresses this issue uh, quite a lot. Late love mating in maturity. Um, a lot of the spike in divorces and marriages that we're seeing today are actually in the boomer cohort, the older people over the age of 50, who where the women are leaving uh, rather massively sort of long-term marriages and the shock of men who don't quite understand what's happened. And it's a little bit of an analysis of what's going on and why this late frustration and why this slew of late relationships and what can we all learn from that? And will it be in any way predictive for what's going to happen to relationships going forward in a more gender balanced world? Yeah, that'd be so interesting. We all know people who have been, who were there, who this has happened to. And, and I suppose from the outside, we kind of just go, Oh, I guess, you know, they just, they just grew apart or I guess, you know, the kids are growing up and they just probably don't know each other anymore because he's been working all his career. She's been raising the kids and they've just realized, you know, we don't know each other anymore. That that would be the kind of first thought or the first port of call for most people. But you're saying that's very different. I'm saying we're on two very different trajectories on the emotional side of life. I think men have been raised, particularly boomer men, it's changing, thank goodness, with the millennials. But boomer men were raised with a particular role and responsibility. They were told not to be women, not to be emotional. Uh, they were told to stand strong and provide for families. They were told to become unemotional, rational beings. And at the same time, women, as they have risen and grown to financial independence and relative power, are asking for more connection, more intimacy, more emotional richness, particularly as they age. And those two things are meeting each other head on at home with um, women's increasing financial power. And if men aren't willing to up their lean in and up their emotional skills and uh, get into more adult human relationships and intimacy at home, I think they will be shocked to find themselves left by women who go hunting for very, very high relationship standards. This is an era where we have never seen such happy, gender-balanced, fulfilled, and mutually self-enhancing couples, probably in the history of humanity. Um, the challenge is now that that is kind of setting the bar for what everybody wants. And if you don't have that and you want it, how are you going to build it and find it? It takes skill and work and the same kind of leadership uh, at home that a lot of us are trying to help develop at work. Yeah. And be, as you know, I think it'd be interesting to see right, if, as a Valentine's Day gift. Is that from, from the, the female to the male or the male to the female? Or Absolutely. The male, to the, male? <laughs> from, the male buying it for himself. 
<laughs> well, we might do. Uh, I was just thinking we might do a, a follow-up show, a Valentine's special on that. Very there you go. <laughs> With great pleasure. I think it would just just like gender balance enhances performance at work. Gender balance at home also yields the most incredible benefits for both parts of the couple and the children involved. So this is definitely a win-win proposition. Uh, it just takes a little bit of work to get there. Aviva, would you mind sharing, you know, how people could get in touch? Because I know you do a lot of consultancy with companies and a lot of keynote spe- speeches. Absolutely. The easiest way is through our website, which is 20-first.com, or just take a look at any of our books, uh, my books on Amazon. They're widely available, and I, I blog very regularly at Harvard Business Review, where I can also be found all of these ideas at over the last several years. And on that particular um, side of work, the the Late Love book can be found at that website, latelove.co, C-O. Brilliant. And it's, it's Aviva with a H as well, just for our audience, A-V-I-V-A-H, Wittenberg Cox. Aviva right. Wittenberg Cox, CEO of Gender Consultancy 21st and author of Why Women Mean Business. Thanks for joining us. Great pleasure, Aidan. Thanks for having me.